Welcome to the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Now, here's your host, editor Christian Berg. All right, welcome back to the Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. I tell you what, it's an exciting day for me here in my home state of Pennsylvania because tomorrow is the 1st of October. It's an opening day of archery deer season here. I can't wait to get back into one of my tree stands for the first time since last year. And, you know, my guest today, I suppose if things go well for me this season, I can give him all the credit. And if they don't, I can give him all the blame. That's Mr. Brian Burhans. He's the executive director of the Pennsylvania Game Commission. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. And, you know, hey, nobody ever blames the Game Commission for anything. So, you know, what the heck? Oh, I don't know, man. Last I checked, you guys were everybody's favorite whipping boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not an easy job to be at the helm of an agency that's responsible for managing, you know, every uh, bird and mammal in the Commonwealth. And there's about a handful that people really, really care about and a whole bunch of others that don't get a lot of headlines and you've got to juggle it all. So uh, it's, I, I got, don't I got the greatest I, job in the world. Let me tell you, it is so exciting, you know, working with our hunters and our tramp trappers, our wildlife watchers and our amazing staff here. Uh, you know, we always joke around about the complaints and actually we get far more compliments than we ever get complaints. And uh, it, it's just, a you know, I, I've, I'm from Pennsylvania, but I've, I've worked out of state. I've worked for other conservation organizations. And by far, this is the most amazing organization, the most beautiful state in the country, bar none. I'm just blessed to be here. Well, it uh, it's definitely this is one of the most exciting weekends of the year for people like me who have been waiting many months to you know, get back out there. And the weather is actually now, of course, tomorrow doesn't look the greatest, which is not atypical. Seems like we we don't all often get great opening days. There is some rain in the forecast, but the cooler weather has been great. And I've actually seen uh, on my trail cameras, like the deer are moving a little bit more than I normally would expect this time of the year. I think I think these cooler temperatures are, are making them a little bit more frisky than usual. Oh, absolutely. And you know, and I like hunting deer when there's a slow mist, light rain, um, you know, because deer are pretty much act normally it's the harder rains that they send to you know just kind of sit tight but i don't know what the weather's going to bring i'm jealous i'm not able to make it out this weekend because almost the entire month of september i've been traveling and i haven't been able to get out get my bow and make sure i'm on but my plan is over the next couple of weeks i'll be ready i got a place set up to go i just got to make sure i'm competent with my bow and i'm gonna i can't wait to get out i got two doe tags and uh with the price of meat right now, I need some uh, affordable protein, let me tell you. Yeah, you and a lot of other people. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to talking to you a lot more about archery season a little later in the show. But, you know, I wanted to spend the first segment talking about something personal, uh, which I really became aware of, honestly, just by being Facebook friends with you. Um, you know, for those of you who are watching the video of the podcast and not just listening uh, you see Brian, he's a good looking fella here, uh, nice and fit and trim, but that wasn't really the case uh, a year ago. And you have been chronicling a pretty incredible transformation. Uh, I don't remember exactly how much you're down, but I know it's over a hundred pounds. So why don't you just uh, tell me a little bit about that? Because that alone is absolutely amazing what you've been able to accomplish. 
You know, I, I've always been a big guy. Now I've had two other periods of my life where, you know, I was running five and a half miles every other day, going to the gym and, you know, went through two other weight loss periods of my life, one in mid 2000s, the other one back in probably 2000. And I kept the weight off, no problem, you know, and in about in 2008, my life changed. I went from working as a director of habitat management or director of land management programs at the National Wild Turkey Federation in South Carolina to president and CEO of the American Chestnut Foundation, where all of a sudden I was on the road two weeks out of the month. If you've ever tried to control your weight by living on the road for two weeks out of the month and eating at restaurants, three squares of meals a day, it is absolutely tough. And I blew up like a bullfrog. Um, came to the game commission, crazy work schedule, traveling all the time, all over the state, crazy hours. You know, half the time you don't even have time to eat. When you eat, I eat whatever's available. Well, my weight, you know, I'm only five foot 10. My weight climbed up to 300 pounds back in December, actually before that. Went to the doctor, I remember going to the doctor's office and they had put me on blood pressure medicine probably two years ago. Had one of our, it's a long story, probably doesn't matter, but got in December, got to my doctor's appointment, blood pressure was still up. He doubled my blood pressure medicine again. Then he took the blood numbers came back or blood tests came back and my resting blood sugar was a 101. Well, that means you're looking at diabetes. And I know a lot about diabetes. My wife's a type one diabetic. Type two is obviously a different animal, but they're very problematic. And I said, I have got to do something now. I'm 55 years old. You know, you hit your fifties and every warning light in the world seems to go off. And I said, I got to do something now. So I focused on my wellness and I've made that my absolute top priority to make sure my calorie loads, right. Get my carbs down fat, reduce my fat significantly. No processed food. Basically I say is if a caveman can eat it, I'll eat it. If a caveman couldn't eat it, I'm not touching it. Here I am, nine and a half months later, I'm down 110, 111 pounds as of this morning. In fact, I had my doctor's appointment this morning. Blood pressure is great. He's starting to take me off my meds. Um, basically, I'll be almost med-free. Um, and he was shocked, you know, because I had another appointment four months ago. And he's like, okay, I want to see you at 190 pounds. I said, all right, I'll get there. It was 189 this morning, which I've been for a week, been stuck at 189. But um, and so I told him, I said, you know, I've never been this low my entire adult life. How far can I go and still be healthy? And, you know, because I'm in a weight loss phase and then I'll move towards fitness just because you're skinny doesn't mean you're fit. So he told me, he says, well, I said, 170 work for you. And he goes, yep, 170 works for me. So that's my new goal. And I'll hit 170 and then transition to where I can start bringing in more exercise routines because I don't take in enough calories to really exercise as hard as I need to and move on from there. Well, I tell you what, that's amazing. 111 pounds in nine and a half months. Like you've more or less lost an entire person off of yourself. And just talk to me real quick about how you feel. I mean, how much different do you literally feel, you know, when you get out of bed in the morning? You know, I felt the difference after I lost the first 20 pounds. So after I lost about 20 pounds, he actually had to cut my medication for blood pressure in half right there. I mean, your body responds that fast to weight loss. I My energy level after doing this for first 10 days skyrocketed, just went nuts. Now, here's how bad it was. I used to get up in the morning and my knees would hurt so bad. 
I have to go down the stairs sideways because you can get it where your knees don't bend as much if you do it that way. I learned that through trial and error. And when I was out hunting, I've always been a very active person. I backpack and when I'm a big turkey hunter. And when I hunt turkeys, I'm walking. I'll, I've done as many as eight, nine miles between 5 a.m. and noon. I love to get out and go find those birds because I hunt public land. I love public land hunting and I love really working for it. And so I'm a very active person. So it's not that I wasn't fit, but when you combine the weight with the level of fitness requirements, they, the two don't mesh out. If you got to be at a healthy weight and have a level of fitness right now, I'm getting good on my weight. Now I got to work on my fitness, but all in due time. So, you know, it was, it was a, it's been a fun trip. It's been the most fun, exciting, exhilarating experience I've ever had because my energy level is through the roof. You know, I have a turkey dog. I like to go fall turkey dog. In, and my turkey dog likes to go outside as much as possible. And I probably walk that dog when I get home about 13 million times. So we do a lot of miles every day just walking that turkey dog. When you walk a turkey dog, you're not really walking a turkey dog. You're watching them stop and sniff and then go 10 feet and sniff again. But nonetheless, we cover a lot of ground. So yeah, my energy level is through the roof. All my joint pain and my knees are completely gone. Um, I get, I sleep much better at night. When I wake up in the morning, I'm far more energetic and raring to go. It has been a game changer. I feel like I feel better now at 55 than I did at 25. It's now, a, it's a light. Now, though, I'm sure I'm sure that I'm not the only person, you know, who's going to see this and think, man, I. I'd like to lose 20 pounds, you know, and they're going to wonder how you did it. And did you have to use, you know, some kind of a magic formula or follow a strict, you know, journal of everything you put into your body or what? I mean, give some give some tips for people Absolutely. who maybe are in a bad place and they want to start their own journey to a better place. Well, you know, there's a there's a million and one ways to lose weight and. You have to pick, if you're going to go with a program, pick the program that fits your lifestyle. I had to look for ways and, and techniques that I could use with, with a lifestyle that is unpredictable. I can't always prepare my meals. It's very difficult sometimes to take my meals. I had to prepare for the fact that I got to deal with restaurants quite a bit for when I'm out. Um, so you need to look at what's going to fit your lifestyle. And there's no one program out there that's best for everybody. It just isn't. You know, but the, the the bottom line is whether you're just on your own cutting your calories, cutting your fats, cutting your carbohydrates, you can do it. I can lose weight on a solid carbohydrate diet. Now, here's the point. It's not that any of those carbohydrates kind of get a bad deal in this country because, you know, we've got the keto diet and the Atkins diet and a lot of and, and cutting your carbs definitely does help. Fact, well, you talked you talked about caveman. So I, that made me think paleo, too which is probably like, I don't know if you were on, you know, a strict paleo, but I mean, that's what people would say, which is very popular now, right? It's really kind of it a pro protein heavy type intake. Exactly. And I wasn't on the paleo diet. Um, but my point being is, you know, when it processed foods, from my experience with this, there's a lot of health conditions that are haven't shown themselves in the last nine months. And if you look at processed foods and the amount of time human beings have had access to processed foods. So you look at modern humans, most scientists would say modern humans have been on earth about 300,000 years. If that's, if say that was the length of a football field, the amount of time we've had access as humans to processed food would measure out about 1.25 inches on that football field. My point is this, 
our bodies have no ability to process that type of food because we've never evolved to have it available to us. So, you know, the product, so I've gone to whole foods, you know, good quality. You look at, for example, the fat issue, fats, we've never evolved with that. You know, our ancestors 200 years ago or a thousand years ago or 200 years ago, they didn't have access to steak and chicken and all that stuff we have access. Now they had deer and they had squirrels. You know, I say, you know, squirrels were, were, were born to feed people because they're healthy, they're lean and they're healthy for us. That, that's what our bodies are adapted to. They're not adapted to these high fat, high processed uh, food diets that we're presented with today. And you look at people that come in from other countries and they're used to their diets in that country. And then they come to the United States. What happens a lot? They gain a lot of weight because they're just trying to deal with the onslaught of processed food, sugar, fats that we have in our American diets. And it's it's killing us. You, you look at the obesity rates in the United States. It's over 30 percent of people are obese. That's not even overweight. That's obese. Um, and that's a dangerous place to be. And even overweight is not a great place to be. But the obesity rate is very high and it continues to climb. I think it was back in 2016. They is when they last the last report I saw where they measured the increase in obesity and it was tremendous. And here's where it kills me. I like to hunt. I like to backpack. I'm an active person. I like to mountain bike. Everything I like to do. I like to fly airplanes. Well, in order for me to continue to fly my airplane, I have to pass an FAA medical. Well, the FAA doesn't like us heavy people too much. It's not that they don't like us, but we're not as safe in an airplane because of medical conditions that can pop up. You get type 2 diabetes, man. That opens up a whole world of issues you're going to have to deal with. I like to hunt. I like to, I like to get out there in the woods. I like to spend my time outdoors. Does me being 300 pounds did not help me. It just hurt me in being able to do the things I like to do. So it, it, it's, a, it's a game changer. Well, you know, and that's why I wanted to discuss it because, you know, there are, there are people in, in the hunting community, uh, you know, who are really known for their fitness, you know, and there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. You look at a, a Cam Haynes, a Josh Bomar, there are some real workout fanatics in the hunting community. And I've never been one of those guys, although I, you know, have great respect for what they're able to accomplish. I don't think the average person is ever going to be like that. But somebody like you is very relatable. And I think that's why you've inspired so many people on social media, because, you know, when I look at somebody who's a world class athlete, the chasm between me and them is just too far. Right. I, I don't think I'm ever going to get there. But when people look at you, they're like, hey, there's a guy who at one time in his life was fit, became very unhealthy, and now he's fit again. And he doesn't look that much different than, than me. And I could do that, too. You know, and so that's got to be very rewarding for you to see how many fellow hunters have probably reached out to you over the course of the last nine months. And you've been able to encourage them. And you probably had quite a few uh, folks, you know, achieve, you know, some similar things. I, I've been overwhelmed by the response. People just thanking me for, you know, gives them encouragement and enthusiasm because so many of us face this struggle every single day. And, you know, we don't have to. I mean, the key to it is, is to fit whatever you do. It's got to fit your schedule. Like I, I'm not, I can't be a gym rat. I'm not going to go to the gym for three hours a day. Can't sustain it. Whatever you pick, whatever you select, however you decide to go on that wellness journey. 
it's got to fit your lifestyle. I, I don't have the time for it. Now, can I afford a little bit of time to do some push-ups and sit-ups and some core training and some jogging? Yeah, absolutely. That's about as far as I'm going to take it. But part of it is, you know, first, my first goal is to get to a healthy weight. Once I get to a healthy weight, I'm going to transition to a normal diet of all the different food groups because it's not that they're unhealthy. It was the amount and the proportion of the different food groups that I was taking in that was not healthy and didn't allow my body to function. So, you know, I've learned, I've been doing a lot of reading and study on nutrition and how to get healthy. And it was, it's been a tremendous opportunity for me to learn about myself and the influence food has on me. Um, I've been very surprised at the impact like sugars, for example, has on my body. I was very surprised, but more, I was even more surprised at the impact fat was having on my body and the negative consequences of that, which means for us as hunters and we like to eat wild game, it's some of the most perfect healthy meat you can put in your body because it's clean, it's wholesome and it's low in fat and it helps us out. So anybody who's getting ready to start their journey, here's my first recommendation though, because anybody, anybody can lose weight. Here's the thing. If you're not absolutely 120% committed that I'm going to change starting today, and this is going to be the first day of the rest of my life, you will fail because you can lose the weight. If you don't take the next step, which is to maintain the weight and maintaining the weight, I don't like the word maintenance because it's not really maintenance because fitness and health is a uh, a finish line that doesn't exist. You're continually working on it. You're continually striving to get better. You're continuing to refine what you do. You're never going to get to that finish line. Your finish line is measured by the things you can do now that you couldn't do before. Your finish line is measured by the longevity of your life. Although there are things, there's healthy people that die of an early age. But I can tell you, if you're overweight, you have obesity, and you're looking at type 2 diabetes, your life longevity is not going to be near as much. And I want to hunt as long as I can. I got a 28-year-old son. I might be a grandfather here one of these years. I want to be around for that. I want to live as long as I can because I have so many amazing things more I want to do as a human being while I'm here. And I only have a fixed time. So before you get on your journey, you better be 100% sure that this is going to be the first day of the rest of your life where you're going to be back to where you started. And it's amazing. Our bodies are programmed to create fat. That's why your body produces insulin, metabolize carbohydrates, and turn them into fat. If you don't stay on it, you will gain the weight back. Now, it doesn't matter how fast you lose the weight. You know, you can lose the weight fast. You can lose it slow. Either way, there are some things that I would always recommend anybody talk to their healthcare provider to see if there's any health complications and how to deal with that, especially if you're like a diabetic or you have, you're taking uh, Coumadin or if you're uh, somebody with a, uh, who's taking medication for some other condition, you want to check with your physician to make sure that those things and what you want to do. I did. I checked with my doctor, said, here's what I want to do. Here's what I'm going to go about doing it. And he said, fine, go ahead and do it. I came back four months later and he's like, wow, you lost 60 pounds. That's not bad. I said, how long do you want me to go? And he told me, I said, boom, I went today. I said, there you go. You told me 190, I'm 189. He just shook his head and said, wow. And then the numbers speak for themselves when the blood results come back. My, my cholesterol is so low, I'm almost in the red of being too low. Um, it really, really works. And the energy you have and is just tremendous. You know, from sleeping better to even getting out of bed, where I can just pop up and get out of bed. I don't have to roll over and put my legs on the floor and drag myself up out of the bed. It will change your life. But if you don't have the commitment and, you know, I have people talk to me all the time, they'll reach out. Well, you know, I want to. And I said, well, how bad do you want to? Well, you know, I, I just want to lose some weight. 
that's not enough. You've got to commit to your health if you want to do it and be successful. Well, you know, I can hear the passion, right? Everyone can see the passion that you have for that. And, and that's powerful. You know, as you were talking, it made me think of a guy that I always liked. He had a whole, he was really popular years ago, Billy Blanks. He did all these Tybo workouts, but Billy was a cool guy, still is. I mean, he's still alive. I follow him on social media, but he had a bunch of sayings, you know? And as you were talking, made me think of Billy Blanks would always say, if you want to change your body, you got to change your mind. And that's what you're talking about. You got to get your mind right. And if your mind is right, you can you can walk down the path and your body will follow if your mind is making the right decisions along the way. Exactly. And you got to you got to realize that we have limitations. What Again, the word sustainability is so important to discuss here. You know, when you look at willpower, when we start any health wellness program. Again, I don't like to talk about it as a diet program because you got to look at weight loss is just one part of it. But when we get started, we use willpower to deal with the hunger pangs and to deal with everything else that goes with that. But over time, it takes your brain between 60 to 90 days to take something and turn it into a habit. We need to turn eating lifestyles into a habit. Now, the problem most people make, what happens if you go to the gym? You made your New Year's resolution. Say, I'm hitting the gym. It's, it's January 3rd. You hit the gym. What do you say at the gym? It's packed. You can't even hardly get in the gym. Go back two months later. What do you see? Nobody's there. Why? <laughs> because they tried to change too much at one time. Yeah. Take small things, make small changes in your in your diet. You know, maybe if you want to take out the carbs, take out the carbs. If you're going to take out the fats, maybe just do little things, maybe just work on portion control. After about 60 to 90 days, you're going to find that that's habit and you don't think about it anymore. Well, then make one more change, make one more healthy change. Maybe you'll go from steak to venison or you'll cut your your protein portion in half. And maybe instead of corn or something that's a little higher in carbohydrate, I'll just stick with salad. And then stick with that for 60 or 90 days and let that turn into a habit. If you try to change everything about yourself in one time, most people will fail because nobody has that much willpower. I made small changes to my life that have accumulated into numerous large changes and large habits. Whereas now I, 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 you know, I'm on a very low calorie diet right now. I keep this way the rest of my life. Don't even think about it. I don't feel that hungry. I don't think about it at all. I know I can't stay on this because I'll starve to death. Eventually I'm going to have to ramp up my calorie and take over time, but it's become habit. And if you focus on the healthy habits that it takes to get healthy, you'll be far more successful than relying on willpower, which will only get you so far. Again, don't change everything at one time, take it in baby steps and just move on down the road, knowing that this is a process with a, a means to an end. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, and I, and I want to transition, you know, to our bow hunting discussion. But so here's the transition, because you talked about, you know, how it's hard with your lifestyle, you know, being the director of the agency and you have to travel a lot. you got a lot of meetings, a lot of odd hours, man. There's nothing to put travel and odd hours into the equation for me than whitetail season, because, you know, I'll be going from here to Kansas, to Ohio, you know, to Kentucky and the early mornings and the late nights and the snacks that you want to throw in your backpack. And it's like, man, you know, we could have a whole, actually, I'll ask you, you can tell me yours, but like everyone has a favorite tree stand snack and mine, what like a go-to 
And it's not good for me. I mean, I know that, but they're good in the tree stand. I like frosted strawberry Pop-Tarts, but Brian Burhans can't take those in the tree because a caveman didn't have Pop-Tarts. You That's know? right, he did So not. it's like, so, so you know, you know, what should I be bringing in my tree stand instead of, I mean, an apple, right? I should bring an apple and some, some deer jerky, right? Exactly. You know, deer jerky is a little high in sodium, uh, but you know, you look, an apple's perfect. Fruit's perfect. Uh, I like almonds, but you got to watch how many almonds you take because they are high in calories. Uh, you know, I'm when I look for my snacks, they're going to be whole type foods that are low in animal fat um, and have you know good caloric value, but I'm not going to exceed the calories I need for the day. I can sit in my tree stand and eat more calories than I burn a day pretty darn easily. It doesn't take many almonds to exceed because I'm not burning many calories sitting in a deer stand. I may be bored, but I'm not hungry. My body doesn't need a nutrition. Nope, no, but very few, very few whitetail hunters lose weight because there's a lot of sitting involved. You want to lose weight, you're better off elk hunting. Yeah. And you gotta you gotta learn to look at that nutrition label on the back of that packaging very, very carefully. That would be one recommendation I would make to anybody is make sure you understand what you're putting in your body. You know, a lot of those are really high in fat. Why was well, why is high in fat in the product to begin with? Because fat satiates our appetite very quickly. You got if you can get yourself off the fat bandwagon and it takes a little bit of time to break it, you're going to find that you're able to satiate your appetite with just good wholesome foods. You know, fruits are very healthy. Nuts are very healthy. The things get, again, caveman ate all of those things. And remember, and here's one of my other motivations to getting healthy was my tree stand and all these tree stands, they have a weight limit. I had exceeded that weight limit. Um, now, tree stand manufacturers make good conservative estimates on how much weight those will cost or take. And they're very robust when they give those. But, you know, here, my stand's 240 pounds and I was 300 pounds plus all my clothing. And, and I don't like getting cold. So I wear a lot of heavy clothing. You know, if I got a windy day and that tree's moving back and forth and I got a stand under me, that's a lot of pressure and you're just asking for trouble. So remember that your equipment has limitations and the amount of weight it will hold. Yeah, that's a wake up call. I hadn't thought about that when you're when your weight is getting over the maximum recommended load limit for your tree stand. That may be a sign that it's time to do something. So there you so Listen, man, I, I congratulate you. And, and like I said, I mean, I I thank all the, the listeners, you know, for indulging us. I I don't know that I've ever had a guest on the podcast who lost one hundred and eleven pounds in the last nine months. And it just seemed like even though he's the executive director of the, the game commission, that it was worthwhile to spend some time talking about that. And I know that, like I said, you know, there's a lot of us out there who could do well to, to heed your example. So I wish you the best with your, you know, continue continuing to you know lose the rest of the weight that you want to lose and, and get into all that you know, a little bit more fitness and cardio and all that. And, and I'm sure you will, because you've demonstrated, you know, the the wherewithal uh, to go ahead and do that. But let's shift gears and talk about archery season and, you know, maybe start from a global perspective. Again, you know, most of my people don't work for state wildlife agencies, you know, who I have on the show. Uh, deer management is probably the most visible job that the Game Commission does, right? Because as I said at the beginning of the show, there's hundreds of different species that you're, you're responsible for managing, but there's none that probably gets even a fraction of the attention no. as white-tailed deer. And that includes bear and turkeys and elk and other things that people actually know about, never mind all the critters that nobody ever thinks about. But I mean, if it wasn't for white-tailed deer, most people wouldn't even know the Game Commission exists. So you guys have this incredible responsibility to manage the deer herd for the entire Commonwealth and 
you know, hunting is an important part of that. And of course, archery hunting is just one component of all the hunting that you do. And uh, just talk to me about, you know, how archery hunting plays into the mix of what you guys do each year as you seek to manage the whitetails in Pennsylvania. Yeah, you know, when you look at archery hunting, it's been really fast growing, strong contingent of our whitetail hunting traditions here in Pennsylvania. I know myself personally, I grew up in Montgomery County outside of Pottstown, Pennsylvania, and I grew up with a bow in my hand. Um, I'll tell a story on myself. My dad, who worked a lot, and he always said, well, you know, you're too young to take a gun by yourself. I was under 16, but if you take your bow, that's okay. So I hunted groundhogs, I hunted rabbits, and I hunted deer, and I had a ball. So I'm a bow hunter, and, and bow hunting has been such a key uh, heritage here in Pennsylvania. I mean, I just, I would rather hunt with a bow than anything else. I've hunted turkeys with a bow and that's a lot of fun. Um, but in Pennsylvania hunting that, you know, I would say most states, archery hunting has gained in popularity. Um, you know, we have healthy wildlife wild, or uh, white-tailed deer populations throughout the United States. They're very abundant. Um, and I like the archery season. And I think most hunters like the archery season because let's face it, is not near as cold and and I don't like I hate cold. I lived in Florida for three years and that ruined me. My blood thinned and it never th was able to thicken up when you're, I returned. You're home. you're speaking my language. I if you listen to this podcast on a regular basis, it comes up just about every show. I talk about how I'm so soft because I can't really stand to hunt once it gets really cold. I'm just like done. Oh, and and <laughs> warning: if you decide to go on a weight loss program, you will get colder. I cannot get warm now. Um, I actually went to Bass Pro the other day and I got, had to buy new hunting clothes because nothing fits. And I also made sure I got heavy duty uh, thermal underwear because I know I'm going to freeze my butt off. But, you know, I love the archery season. They're just, you know, I love the smell of the leaves as they turn and they fall. And you can smell that decomposition being in the woods, especially towards the end of the season when the rut's up and about. Uh, it's just so much fun. And in Pennsylvania, you know, with the introduction of crossbows into the archery season has really expanded opportunities for so many people. I think somewhere around 67, 68% of our hunters are crossbow hunters. And it has, and I've been out in the field and talked to hunters and, you know, a lot of our older hunters or hunters that can't physically pull back a bow for whatever reason, or just enjoy a, a crossbow that has expanded their opportunities to be able to hunt in the most wonderful time here in Pennsylvania woods, which is the fall. And, you know, still plenty of places to hunt. You know, we're so lucky in Pennsylvania where other states I lived, finding a place to hunt, you had to write a big check. Here in Pennsylvania with what, 6 million acres of, of public land available, it's like falling off the log. So, I mean, we are so blessed here in Pennsylvania to have the opportunities that we have, but archery hunting is such a big part of deer hunting. And you're right, deer hunting drives conservation here in Pennsylvania. It's our number one big game species, even though I think the turkey's far better, but that's just me. Yeah, that uh, I'm not going to back you on that, but uh, <laughs> I know that there is definitely, you know, there's that segment, and I guess you count yourself among them, the, the real turkey fanatics, you know, and uh, those I guys just disease. can't get enough of it. Yeah. No. So I you mentioned something about the crossbow, and I, and I wanted to touch on that a little bit because it's interesting, Brian. We, um, in addition to being the editor of Peterson's Bowhunting, our company publishes a special magazine once a year that just goes out on newsstands called Crossbow Revolution. And so we put that out each summer, and it stays out there through the fall. Matter of fact, if anyone's listening, if you're a crossbow guy or, or gal, 
get out there and pick up this year's issue. But one thing that we look at each year is kind of the state of crossbow hunting. And I was amazed to see in states, you know, like Wisconsin and I'm um, trying to remember Illinois, maybe Pennsylvania, which you just talked about. The crossbow has gone from something, you know, it's funny, before my life here at the magazine, I was a newspaper reporter for 17 years. And before, I don't know how long you've been with the agency, but I didn't know you back when I covered the game commission, but I used to be at every commissioner's meeting and, you know, House Game and Fisheries Committee meetings in Harrisburg at the Capitol. So I was really plugged in at one time to all the regulatory things. And I think it was back in like 2005, give or take, is when crossbows started to come in in Pennsylvania. And if I recall, uh, I think it was in a, a limited area initially. And then eventually they expanded crossbow use throughout the state for all of the archery season. Uh, but anyway, it kind of runs a parallel track to when the compound bows first came around in the eighties, you know, yeah. everybody thought the compound bow was going to ruin bow hunting. And anybody who picked up one of those fangled contraptions with the wheels on them, you know, you got to have your training wheels. There shouldn't need training wheels to go. You got to have a long bow or a recurve. And, and we kind of saw the same thing repeat itself. And it was pretty, honestly, it was pretty acrimonious for a number of years, at least a decade or more. And, you know, the United Bowhunters of Pennsylvania were vehemently against crossbows. People really were at odds. And somewhere along the line, that started to die down. And it just seemed like people didn't really care about it as much. And then we stopped thinking about it. And now we look at the statistic and then it's like, you know, I'm going to come back to what you said, six, 67 or 68 percent of all the archery hunters in Pennsylvania are carrying crossbows. That means basically seven, almost seven out of every 10 bow hunters are carrying crossbows. Folks, that's not just allowing a new weapon. That's not just giving people another option. That's literally changing the face of the archery hunting community where if you would have gone back to 1995, it would have been pretty much 90% compounds and 10% tradition. Now, fast forward, you know, 25 years, and you have mostly crossbows is what you're telling me, you know, a good, solid minority of compounds. And then again, I'm going to say your traditional archers will still be less than, you know, 10%, somewhere in the single digits or your recurve and, and longbow guys. But that's a big change, Brian. Oh, it is. You know, we still see the, the the I call it the crossbow wars that pop up in Pennsylvania, the arguments back and forth about it. Um, part of it's driven by how crossbows, unfortunately, are advertised. You know, you think, oh, I can shoot a deer at 100 yards. Man, real, real hunting conditions. You, you know, it's they're about the same. And we look at our, our harvest, our deer harvest. When you look at the harvest of deer with crossbows or vertical bows, the, the, the crossbow hunters are no more successful than the vertical bow hunters when you look at the proportion of deer taken. Uh, but the, what it does do is it allows more people to get out in the field and enjoy hunting. You know, and from my standpoint, what better way to keep hunting alive in a time when we're seeing a continual decline in hunters than to offer this opportunity to beat out the most beautiful time of the year, time when deer are very active, and a time when so many people can get out and enjoy it. It's, it's you know, to me, bow hunting is such a, a wonderful activity uh, for people to engage in, whether you're going out with a crossbow or a vertical bow. Fortunately, we're seeing people generally understand that, you know, just get out and hunt. 
I mean, I just, you know, and, and I think one of the worst things I'm seeing is where we have your crossbow hunters and your vertical bow hunters arguing with each other that about wounding rates and other arguments that have no data behind them, but they just argue about it. Guys, let's just get out and ladies, let's just get out there and hunt and enjoy ourselves. Cause that's, we're so lucky to have what we have. Well, and you know, it's certainly everybody has their personal opinions and their personal preferences. You know, I would say that I, I gravitate more towards the compound, but I also will do some crossbow hunting every year. And part of that is, you know, because I work in the industry and I need to kind of, I feel like I ought to have, you know, current contemporary experience with both, but there's been a lot of cool innovations in the crossbows. And, um, you know, from your standpoint as an agency, you guys are, again, management. You have a certain number of deer or a certain percentage of deer that you want to see harvested each year. And I like I, one of my favorite sayings is dead is dead, which is <laughs> means, you know, it doesn't matter if you shoot it with a 30 out six or a 10 point crossbow or a white compound, or you hit it with your Mercedes, it's one dead deer. And the game commission doesn't really care exactly how that became dead. Yeah, we just got to eat our harvest goes and goals. And, you know, that comes down to your antlerless harvest. Now, one of the arguments I hear is, well, you know, the, the archers are, in general, all of them, crossbows and vertical bows, are, are killing most of the deer before the general rifle season comes up. They're killing half of them. Well, that's not, that's not true at all. Um, you know, the, half the harvest is taken in archery season as compared, about half, if I'm remembering correctly. I hope I'm not wrong on that figure. About half of them are harvested in archery season, the other half in rifle, rifle deer season and some other seasons. But that's not the point. It's not half the bucks are being killed. It's half of the harvest, which is a much different number. When you look at how many bucks are remaining at the end of the season, most of them, most of them are still alive. There's still a ton of bucks running around on the landscape. When deer season is over, there are plenty of bucks still, still running around. So um, there's always that, you know, within hunters, we tend to want to compete with each other, whether we're talking about predators and that raccoons and foxes and and coyotes are competing for turkeys because they eat their eggs or whether other hunters are competing because I'm a rifle hunter and I just hunt rifle. You know, there is plenty of wildlife out there. We got to work hard for it. That's hunting. That's not changed over the eons. It's always been difficult to harvest a buck. And in fact, if you look at our harvest rates or success rates today, they're the best they've ever been here in Pennsylvania and probably that way throughout most of the country. So we're really living in the golden times of wildlife management right now. We have very in fact, overabundant deer populations in so many areas where we really desperately need hunters, especially in areas where we have CWD or urban metropolitan areas where we have deer and we have hard getting access to those deer. We need our hunters out there hunting deer and helping us meet those harvest goals. But it's such a great time to be a hunter in Pennsylvania and probably just about every state. Yeah, that's where, you know, obviously, you know, wildlife populations are definitely cyclical. They rise and fall over the years. And I've lived, I live in Schuylkill County and I've lived here about 17 years. And I can honestly say that the deer population here in 4C, where I do most of my hunting is probably higher, not probably, I would say it's definitely higher today than it's ever been in the 17 years that I've lived here. And that would be borne out, you know, by my personal observations, whether it's in the woods myself, on my cameras. And if you talk to a lot of the farmers in this area, I mean, they're really crying probably louder these last handful of years than they ever have. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, there's definitely a need. I, I like to say around here, it's like, if you can't go out and shoot a doe, 
like, you know, around where I live, Brian, you stink. You're a terrible deer hunter because there's <laughs> there's so, so many antlerless deer, you know, here. And, um, you know, this is and this is where it gets into nitpicking, right? Because people always want to micromanage, you know, you get a guy like me who want, you know, I don't know what you're doing in the whole rest of the state, but I want to talk about, you know, this this unit and you should have had more antlerless tags over here. And, and, and you know, everybody's an expert. You know, it's it's funny. I'm a PIAA uh, official. I, I became a, a referee and an umpire this year. All the experts are in the stands. And all the experts are in, in the stands for you guys too, right? <laughs> Every, everybody who buys a hunting license is a deer manager. Oh, yeah, because they judge what the rest of the state's doing in deer population or turkey population or bear population or whatever based on what their hunting experience was. And that's why wildlife management is so difficult is because an individual's personal experience is just that. It's a personal experience. It's very valid. They had an experience and they tell us what that experience is. And if they didn't see a lot of deer, then there must not be any deer in the state. Well, the fact of the matter is you may be in the wrong spot. And that's the hard thing with hunting is you got to go where the, you know, deer aren't behind every tree. Turkeys aren't behind every tree. Bears aren't behind every tree. You got to figure out what trees are behind. You know, and it's kind of like we talked about wellness. If there's one thing that we need to look at when we, whether it's being successful as a hunter or being successful in your wellness journey is we just need to get out of our own way. A lot of times we're the problem. We, we don't have the time or we don't put in the effort. We don't put in the scouting. We don't put in the practice. There's a number of things that we can do as hunters to make us more successful. I can do all those things and still not be successful, but I'm going to have a good season because I've done the prep. I've done the work. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it does. Remember, imagine if we were would promise a deer for every garage, you know, we'd, we'd probably run out of deer here after a while. So um, there is a success rate that's involved in that oh, deer yeah. management. Well, I mean, it's a learning process and it never changes. I don't care how long you live, how many decades you're able to hunt these deer. I will never feel as though I have everything figured out when it comes to the white-tailed deer and I have all the answers. But to your point, I do know I do know that Einstein said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. So if you're one of those deer hunters who's going out repeatedly and you're not seeing deer, uh, you've got to try to do something different. That may be going to a different area in a lot of instances. So, yeah, I mean, don't be afraid to go explore new areas of, of that public ground or start knocking on some doors and trying to get some access to some other you know, properties on private ground. Cause like you said, even, even in areas like here where there are a lot of deer, I could take you out on any given day, Brian. And I bet you, I, I know with confidence, I could pick spots where you won't see any deer and I could set you there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so you could do a lot of hours in the woods and not see any deer. How many, do you happen to know, by the way, I, I'm, I'm interested. I think people would be interested. Um, how many hunters total, like back when I covered things, we were about a million. I would say you're probably down in the 800,000s if I had to guess, but how many total hunters do we have in Pennsylvania today? And then how many total bow hunters, do you know? Oh, uh, total hunters is, uh, let's see, about 800, a little over north of 850,000 hunters. And I have, ah, I could get you, I didn't get the numbers, the total number of bow hunters we have, and I won't guess on how many, but it's a lot. We have a lot of bow hunters here in Pennsylvania. Well, probably over a quarter of a million, I would think, or give or yes, take. Yes, I think it's upwards close, somewhere around 300,000 mark. Yeah. But I so could be I wrong. Mean, and, 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 and how many deer, again, I apologize because I'm hitting you with this stuff and you might not have it top of mind. How many deer roughly are we killing every year in Pennsylvania? And then how many, how many of those are coming with archery tackle? 
Well, the, the archery tackle, again, is uh, about, you know, 45% somewhere in there are coming from the archery side. Because remember, the percentage of people harvested, no, that, no, I'm sorry, I was going back. That was crossbows versus vertical bows. The total number of deer, it's about half of all the bucks, at least, are harvested in the archery season. Half of the bucks harvest of the total year's harvest. And the other harvest is coming in the rifle deer season. And I know I've got some info on, here we go, deer harvest. So the 20th lease for the 2021 season, the harvest basically was in line with what we've seen from 2017 uh, through 2019. I don't have the exact numbers um, and I won't guess because it'll probably be wrong. Um, but, you know, we're looking at this year coming up. We're looking at another good year. You know, we'll have uh, the, the estimates for harvest will go up and down, but it really doesn't mean anything other than you're looking at trends of harvest and our, our harvests are really good. And right now our harvest goals in most wildlife management units are to stabilize the herd. There's only two wildlife management units where we're trying to bring the herd down. Uh, that would be in 2F, which is where we're having a lot of forest impacts from deer. And the other one being uh, 3D, which is where we have chronic waste and disease. So we're trying to, as, a, as one of the techniques to offset chronic waste and disease is to kind of reduce that population a little bit to reduce that contact with deer to try to manage the uh, incidence of CWD in those areas. But, you know, overall, I mean, Pennsylvania is always in the top three, one, two, three, when it comes to buck harvest, doe harvest. It, it's just an amazing, we're lucky in Pennsylvania because if you look at Pennsylvania, we're in that sweet spot where we're not so far south. We, you know, we have a really good quality soils, a lot of good quality forage, but we don't go so far north where we get the harsh winters. So deer in Pennsylvania, we're at that really nice sweet spot where they do really, really well in the state. And we're really lucky um, for where we're at. Yeah, and we don't have a lot of predators either. I mean, we do, but we don't. You know, the predators that we do have, you know, certainly coyotes, bears, uh, bobcats, the fawns are very susceptible to them. I, I would say that adult adult white tails are probably not taken in, you know, large numbers by those predators. Yeah. We don't have wolves. We don't have grizzly bears. We don't have mountain lions. Contrary to what some people believe, Brian, would you like to go on the record just by saying that we have no self-sustaining breeding population of mountain lions in the Commonwealth? I will go on record with that. We do not have any self-sustaining reproducing mountain lions in Pennsylvania. Now, is it possible for our mountain lion to come from the Dakotas and wander through Pennsylvania? Yes. But remember, we're also one of the most roaded states in the eastern United States, and they're going to get whacked on the highway pretty quick. We saw that in Connecticut with a with the mountain lion that walked walk through that state, and they don't last long once they hit Pennsylvania because mountain lions have a huge range. They can cover a long, long way. Um, but, you know, they're going to show up. How many game trail cameras do we have spread out throughout Pennsylvania? And we've never received a legitimate photo that I'm aware of of a mountain lion in Pennsylvania. So, um there's a lot of believers out there. My dad, he used to be one, bless his heart. Um, he was just convinced, and he also believed in Bigfoot, too. But um, I may go with the Bigfoot more than I go with the mountain lion, but I don't know. I always say, you know, it. Uh, think about how many people are in the woods on, like, opening day of rifle season, you know, in November. And uh, the odds of a wolf, a mountain lion, or a Sasquatch being in this state and not being shot photographed, videoed, or otherwise are very, very slim. There's just, uh, like you said, we think there are so many parts of Pennsylvania that are so rural, but yet as I travel out west to places like Montana, you realize what rural really is. And 
the truth of the matter is that in this state, if you just point yourself in any given direction and walk long enough, it's not going to be very long before you come to a road or a person. Exactly. You out west and hunt, you know, South Dakota and Montana and Wyoming, you're going to be walking for days. Pennsylvania, most of the time you're going to be walking about a half hour and boom, there's, there's a road. So, well, listen, I tell you what, you brought something up and I don't even want to dive into it because we're coming up on an hour and I know you're a busy man. Chronic wasting disease, man. We got to have you back and do a whole show just on that. Maybe oh, get uh, get some of your biologists. That is a really difficult issue. And uh, man, I'll just tease it, though. If you have me, if you're willing to do that with me, just be forewarned. I'm a bit of a contrarian on CWD, um, just in the fact not that it's not that it's not a bad thing. But just if you look at all the if you look at all the data, um, unfortunately, nobody's really come up with a way to to manage it. You know, everything when it comes to that disease is kind of reactionary rather than proactive. And and it just seems to do what it's doing, you know. So hopefully we learn more about that and come up with something, you know, really viable. But uh, that's I don't envy you. on trying to figure out what you're supposed to do with that one. Well, I refer to chronic wasting disease, CWD, as career wasting disease. And it is the most frustrating thing that I've ever faced in my entire career, you know, because it's almost like it pits the hunters against the agency. And it's like, guess what? We don't like CWD any more than you do. And like you said, there is no cure for CWD. We're in a position, the states that have chronic wasting disease are in a position that uh, we are going to just have to manage it and keep the incident rate down as low as we can. Now, the problem is if you don't, you know, you're going to get into areas where half your bucks and we've already seen it. We've got a couple of places like that in Pennsylvania where half your bucks have CWD. It's not a good position to be in, especially if you really like hunting older age class bucks. They're not going to be there when because it is always fatal. Um, CWD is absolutely always fatal. And that's an absolute true fact. There's a lot we don't know about CWD. Now, we've been working on some new technology. For example, we have dogs and we have proof of contact now that dogs that can detect CWD, we continue to make advances in technology. You mean yeah. they can smell it like, like they do with they some can cancer? Smell it. Absolutely. We have a program called our Wildlife Futures Program, which is a partnership with the University of Pennsylvania uh, Penn Vet Lab. And we've developed, uh, they're basically labs that will, although I tease them and say she use turkey dogs with real good sense of smell, but they use labs. Um, and I can see why they're much easier to deal with. But, um, you, but just yeah, they, insult, you just insulted my lab who's sleeping right here on the bed behind <laughs> me. <laughs> hey, they, uh, yeah, well, they listen better than my bird dog, trust me. So I know why they use labs, um, but but they, they can detect CWD. So that's going to open up some doors. We, we got to continue. Here's one thing about CWD. We can't just sit back and say, well, I give up. We have a responsibility to do everything we can to deal with CWD. And best we can do right now is manage it and try to keep the incident low. Um, you know, you know, where there's talk discussion, well, can it cross to humans? Right now, we see no evidence going to cross to humans. But I do recommend if you get your deer tested here in Pennsylvania, if you bring your drop your head off at one of our collection bins, you get it tested for no cost at all. You know, and if it's if it has CWD, it's a personal decision whether or not you want to eat it or not. I wouldn't, but that's just a personal decision. But many CWD infected deer are eaten every year by hunters all day long. No issue. Oh, yeah. Because we, most of them, most of them that are, we the people never knew that they were. They never knew that they ate you know. it. So, you know, the best you can do, it's a personal decision. But here's the thing, too, that we got to remember when 
you know, if for those of us who maybe have had loved ones that went through CJD or they went through Alzheimer's, these are both human prion diseases. And you look at the progression of that disease and how horrifying that is for the individual experience. A white-tailed deer is going through that same individual experience as an animal of that slow death over time. And, you know, as wildlife professionals, as an agency that's responsible for managing a public trust such as white-tailed deer, we feel we have an obligation and a responsibility to the public to do everything we can possible to try to limit the spread of this disease and keep the the, the frequency of this disease as low as we can. Uh, it's not just the risks of human health. It's the responsibility to the deer herd itself and it's responsibility to the health of the deer overall. You know, CWD is not the only disease we're experiencing in wildlife populations that are having severe consequences. Look at our cave dwelling bats in Pennsylvania, which saw a 99% decline in populations as a result of white nose syndrome. Look at rough grouse in Pennsylvania, which has been a combination, kind of the perfect storm of where we are out in forest management in the Commonwealth and where we are with a, this disease that came in and put a double wallop on them. It's not a good place to be. So, you know, our role as an agency is not to try to create barriers to hunters and inconvenience hunters or try to overhype CWD, but simply here are the facts about CWD. This is what we know for sure about CWD. This is what we know is working so far. And here's the things we're working on moving forward because we we have a responsibility as an agency to move forward with that. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in your position, there's always some success stories and always some challenges, you know, certainly CWD is a challenge. You know, we talked about, I think overall, you know, deer populations strong, uh, you know, bear populations doing well, the, the elk herd, you know, is a kind of a great success, kind of a jewel in your crown, but there's other things, you know, like the bats, um, the grouse, a one that again, uh, something else I'd really love to have you back on. I'd like to get you, uh, maybe somebody from the Midwest turkeys, boy, turkey populations are in difficulty, you know, in a lot of areas. You've seen states like out in Kansas, uh, some other states in the Midwest reducing season lengths, reducing bag limits. There was a time, especially out in that part of the world, where you just couldn't hardly, you know, turn around without bumping into a flock of turkeys. And it's not like that anymore. So it's always something on the horizon for you people in your you know, profession to, to have to deal with. Yeah, we're not lacking any issues. You know, in Pennsylvania, we shortened our fall turkey season for that reason. But there's when it comes to turkeys or any other population, as you can see there's a whole bunch of things going on. There's factors such as when you have a new reintroduced population, they always do better. And then they come down over time. And then obviously predation is part of that. But like predation on deer, you know, predation is on fawns is fairly high. But we have enough survivors that we have a robust and abundant population. So predation has been part of it for eons. Now, it doesn't explain all of it, but I do know that we've had good reproduction in years where we've had good springs for reproduction. In other words, drier springs. Last year was a really good year in most places in Pennsylvania. I'm kind of hoping this year, maybe I'm just too much of a half glass full person, that it's looking pretty good in Pennsylvania this year. If we had a predator problem, we wouldn't have had good reproduction. Now, do predators have an effect? Absolutely, hands down, no, all day long. The question is, what's the solution? That yeah. is the question. And, and you know, you'll hear the arguments, well, we need to do predator control. Well, that may work for mallards and the prairie potholes because I've got a defined area and I know I can have an impact. Um, but for a state the size of Pennsylvania, 
Mm, not so. Well, not, not at all. And, and yeah, and that's where, boy, and there's just, I'm telling you what, I could do 10, 12 hours because we could, I could pick any number of things and just dive in deep. But like what you're talking about, people underestimate, you know, the average hunter underestimates how much he or she can actually impact quality of wildlife population just in their little neighborhood. Because to your point, I mean, trapping is nothing like it once was, you know, here Mm -hmm. or anywhere else. And I think the odds of it ever being what it once was are slim. So, you know, how you're going to do a massive predator control, I don't know on a statewide basis. But I can tell you that if a group of people in a given area of a few thousand acres implemented an aggressive program, you know, to trap skunks and raccoons and possums and and coyotes and things like that, that you can definitely have an impact in, in that localized area because people do it all the time, you know, around the country. Uh, same thing with the deer program. You know, sometimes people are happy with what you do or unhappy with what you do with your general, you know, deer management parameters, you know, your seasons, your bag limits, your antler restrictions, whatever it is, it's like, folks, if you don't want to shoot a particular animal, don't shoot it. You know, you're, you have the ultimate management right here in your trigger finger. You know, you are the ones, you really are a deer manager every time you go to the woods with a tag in your pocket, because you're making decisions, literally life or death decisions. And, And the game commission, you know, they can, they can do whatever they want to do, but to a certain extent, it only has impact if they can convince, you know, a, a, a majority of the bow hunting public, the, the gun hunting public to go along with those things, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, why don't I end with this big picture question for you? I think that uh, prior to COVID, there was a general sense of, I don't know if doom is the word, but kind of a, we were on like a slow fade, if you will. There was always talk within the hunting community of how, you know, we were gradually dwindling, gradually fading away. And then COVID came. And obviously, we don't need to rehash COVID. We all know what happened. But there was a major push to the outdoors, not just hunting and fishing, lots of other outdoor activities, you know, camping and boating and things like that. But but you guys saw surge along with, with all those other things. Now, as we kind of get back to normalcy, as you look out to the horizon, you know, what is the future of hunting um, and, and, and what, what do you see uh, on the horizon as society continues to seem to become more, you know, right here. This is what I always hold up when you talk about trying to get kids and the next generation. We're fighting these darn phones and I'm as guilty as anyone. You know, I'm addicted to this thing just like everybody else. And yes, I play with my phone on the deer stand, you know, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. But uh, what are the challenges that you face and, and, and are you optimistic about, you know, the next generation? Well, you know, there's two camps, the camp that, man, we're losing our hunters are dwindling will be nothing. I'm not in that camp. I'm in the camp that, you know, our numbers are going to change over time, but I believe we're going to hold a lot of hunters, you know, and what that number ends up being at, we're still going to have a lot of hunters in this country. I think where our challenges are and where society is changing is it's the it's the opportunities. What COVID did is provide more opportunity for people to more easily accept, have time to go out and hunt. And I think as an agency, we look very closely at that is 
how can we make it easier for people to get outdoors? So you have your hardcore hunter that is no matter what, I don't care if their truck's broken, they're going to crawl to their deer stand 10 miles down the road, get in a tree stand and going to hunt. If we're just going to rely on our core hunt, you know, our hardcore hunters to keep us alive, it's going to be an extremely small number. But if we're looking at providing reasonable access opportunities, whether it's how you structure your seasons and bag limits, those are the things we need to look at. But I'm not a doom and gloom. As I look to the future, I look at hunting as a very stable, good opportunity. It's always going to be there. Maybe our numbers may continue to decline, but I don't think I do not think they're going to decline to zero. Maybe in 100 years from now, we're looking at a completely different situation. Fortunately, I'll be dead and I won't I won't have to think about it. It would be horrible if hunting wasn't available. But for right now, I think we're you know, I look at our hunting numbers. Yeah, they continue to show a very small decline. But I can also see the regulatory changes we have that made a positive impact on hunter recruitment, retention and reactivation. So there are things that can be done in Pennsylvania. Sunny hot more Sunday hunting opportunity would be a tremendous advantage. And we saw the impact Sunday hunting. We saw the impact, positive impact that Saturday opener had in the rifle deer season. Those two things showed us that with more opportunity and more ease for people to get in the field, the more hunters are going to be able to stay engaged in hunting. Well, I tell you what, uh, really appreciate your time today. So, so many things we could dive more detail. I'm going to make a list and try and follow up with you on some of these things. But for now, I will just say that the deer need to be on their guard this fall and come the spring, the turkeys, especially because a, a lean, mean Brian Burhans is going to be like getting up and down the hills faster than he has in a long time. And he is going to be getting after it out. There. They better run and be scared because here I come. <laughs> well, I wish you the best. I, uh, I, I will keep in touch. Let me know, you know, when you bag the big one. And if I do the same, I will. And as I said at the beginning, if I don't, um, you know, you heard it here first. For, uh, heard it here first, folks. It's Brian's fault. You know, the Game Commission didn't have a big buck tied up for me here somewhere in Schuylkill County. He's supposed to send me those GPS coordinates. <laughs> Man, I thank you for having me on. I'm always out. I always love talking about hunting and wildlife. Anytime you want to talk, I am always ready to go. Well, I do appreciate it. And again, congrats on that awesome uh, uh, health journey that you've been on. And uh, wish you continued success with that and for the Game Commission as well in uh, making sure that all of us have wildlife, not just to hunt, but to, uh, to enjoy for a long time to come. Thank you. Thanks for downloading the Peterson's Bow Hunting Podcast. All bow hunting, all the time. Pick up the latest issue of Peterson's Bow Hunting Magazine on your local newsstand or connect with us online at bowhuntingmag.com.